You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld. Welcome, and welcome to my guest, Rich Miranoff. Hi, Rich. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here, Lou. Thanks. Great to have you here. A lot of people know Rich, especially in the product world. He's been doing enterprise product management since the 80s. Even I remember that far back, but that's 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 a long <laughs> time, Rich. Uh, yeah, you've been you, you and I go back, I know. You've been blogging for over 20 years at Product Bytes on your website, Miranoff.com, and uh, doing a lot of writing for years and, and doing what sounds like a hell of a lot of psychology that goes under the uh, aegis, or at least the, uh, the the title of product management, because you know you're doing product management, which sounds like like an exercise in, in parenting really difficult children, uh, but doing it in an enterprise setting, which is like doing it in a I don't know a, a, an enormous in the kindergarten of the circus tents. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, you know. So how did you first of all find yourself doing product management back? way back when and uh, in an enterprise setting. That's right. Like, uh, completely uh, accidentally. Yeah. I, I think if you ask that question of almost everybody who, who was in a product job 10 or more years ago, there's always some accident story. Uh, I was at a company called Tandem Computers, oh, which yeah. in the mini computer days was, was the place to be across Cupertino from that other famous computing company um, and had come in on a strategy job, which was sort of ill-defined and not really interesting work. And somebody asked me if I wanted to be a product manager. And before I thought about it or asked what that was, I said, yes. Um, which by the way, uh, these days when somebody says they want to be in product management, I feel like it's my obligation to argue the other side of that question for the first five minutes, because it's all the responsibility and none of the authority. And so back to the psychology, we're always trying to get the folks in every other department to agree to get on the same train and get the same thing shipped, but nobody works for us. Well, okay. But getting back to tandem, you, you found yourself saying, yes, was this, uh, a moment of uh, of naivete that you look back on and, and nowadays, well, it sounds like nowadays you would tell yourself no. Uh, uh, I had fun doing it. I didn't really know what it was for the first couple of years. Um, and in those days, if we go back to the 80s, most product management really reported up through engineering. And so we were much more of spec writers and sort of the narrow definition of product owners and here's a ticket than we were doing the the broad market analysis and economics and thinking about users and products the way we are today. So I think I was lucky enough to start when it was a narrower, easier job. And, um, you know, it helped that I were an engineer, even if I aren't one now, <laughs> because that's what they were really looking for. Well, Rich, so you're speaking at a conference coming up really soon, like in a few really weeks. Soon. Yeah, it's Design and Product. It's a, a new conference that we're putting on at Rosenfeld Media. It's taking place virtually on December 6th. And uh, if you want to check it out, it's designandproduct.info, folks. Uh, it's one day of uh, really helping UX people and product people have a better conversation because, let's face it, we don't always. And it can be quite fraught can be fractious uh, and certainly, you know, understanding more of the UX side of things. There's a lot of frustration, some of it fair and some of it not about the role of product of, you know, product folks being the ones ultimately make decisions, decide what gets shipped. And uh, there's so much opportunity for 
those two areas to just understand each other better, to work together better, to start speaking some of the same language. And that's what we're really going to be trying to do uh, in that day. And Rich is one of our speakers. But, um, you know, I know from talking with you, you know, we've, we've been in touch for quite some time. You do really see it as like a, an exercise and maybe not so much psychology, but mediation. Like you see the, the, the person on the product side is, is really kind of having uh, a connection to many of the silos in an organization. And it's a kind of unique and maybe, would you say, uniquely uncomfortable place to be. <laughs> uh, a lot of smart people figure out they don't want to be doing that. So I think uniquely uncomfortable is is spot on. Um, I, I think that there's a couple of root issues. One is that every single department in whatever company you're in has this really short list of things they want from the product and therefore engineering and design teams. And you know none of them have a list of more than let's say 400 items. Right. And when you when you merge all those lists, you get something like 20x or 50x or 100x the capacity of your engineering and design team. And so what that means for product folks is we are expecting every day to find some nice, polite, humane way to say no to 95 percent of all the stuff people want to give us and tell us is important and they've thought through. And and that's. You know, that takes a lot of resilience and some thick skin and, and good technique, and it's wearing on a lot of folks, and, mm -hmm. and they move on to something, you know, that, that's a better fit. Um, you know, so, so I think we're trying to do a lot of filtering, intense filtering, because if, if even a half of the 35 interruptions a day I get from Slack and email and post-it notes and customer advisory boards and salespeople who call me up and the other 15 channels. If we let even half of that through to the rest of the team, they'd get nothing else done, right? So, so how do we hold the line on whatever our plan was for the week and, you know, uh, think about what we might consider next week when most of the fires are out and most of the excuses for why we needed those things have disappeared. Right. If you if you slow it down just three days or four days or two days, um, much of it evaporates and people move on. Um, but if I let my designers and engineers get pelted the way my product managers get pelted every 13 minutes, which is why we're all ADHD, mm -hmm. um, they'd all resign or, or, or give up. Right. So so we're the we're the umbrellas here rather than the funnels, if that's the analogy everybody likes. Um, and we don't always get it right. But I think we bring a lot of heart to that. We bring a lot of we we try to bring patience and we try to bring good filtering so that the rest of the team can do the work that they've signed up to do that they're so excellent at. So you're making it so that you're making them successful and uh, yes, you're helping right. them be successful. How? I mean that's a really difficult position, right? You're 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 saying no with a smile, hopefully, but you know, no matter how much you smile, ultimately it's going to be no, no, and more no. And as a as a, the person doing that, and and really kind of getting battered from many directions by people needing, wanting, trying to influence mm -hmm. you, how sure. do you how how do you maintain? Um, the ability to, to keep saying no and yet maintain the respect of the people you're saying no to. I think if we turn it around some, I, I don't think the goal is to say no. I think the goal is to um, show what we're doing that's higher priority, 
Right. So uh, things I always assume, uh, there's a phrase we use sometimes on the product side, which is called roadmap amnesia. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's and it's the effect that as soon as there's something new I want or a customer told me or I saw an opportunity, my brain is wiped completely clean of everything else. And the fact that it's Thursday and just on Tuesday, we all agreed on the quarter's goals and we all agreed on what was priority. And there were five things at the top when, a, you know, particularly an executive, when a customer calls an executive up and says, I can't seem to get your, your three factor authentication working or whatever it is right? That executive puts on their armor and drives drives through all the walls and knocks all the obstacles down, goes to product and engineering and sometimes nine and says, this is broken. We need to put this at the top of the list, right? Customers are suffering. Users are hurting, right? And so one of the first things I always do is I bring out the list of what we're actually working on. Okay. Here's the the three or the five most prominent, biggest, most important projects that we're trying to get done this quarter. And you can just see the lights go on in the other person's eyes and the other head because suddenly they see that, um, you know, uh, making sure that we're not violating GDPR for our European customers may in fact be more important than fix- fixing this particular issue, right? right. Or um, if they're on the sales side, because um, useful to know, sales teams don't get paid unless they close the deal in front of them. And the fact that some other sales team had a bigger deal that got waved through isn't of interest to them, right? Um, If I can go back to the VP of sales and say, here are the two of the huge deals we're supporting you this quarter out of band because we have to, if you wanna sacrifice one of those two deals for this number five or number nine deal that's smaller, Mm -hmm. um, we'll do that for you, but you'll make less money this quarter, right? You know, in some ways it it starts with the exclusive or description or trade-off. Right. Because, in fact, there is no more room at the end. There's no engineering team hiding in my pockets. Right. There, there's nobody sitting around on the design side eating bonbons and reading, you know, romance novels. Right. Um, everybody's busy. And so pro- good product folks will start with the status quo, with the current plan, with the list and say, I would love to give you what you wanted help me figure out what we've already prioritized that's less important than this. And then by the way, we're gonna need your help going to all those stakeholders and convincing Mm. them that they no longer want what they wanted and they want what you want. But do you ever find when, well, I'm sure you do, that the executive says, I don't care, I'm the executive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make That's what I'm still, yeah. So, uh, you know, they're the hippo and what happens? You get put in a position where you have to be the one going to those other stakeholders on behalf of the executive. Or, or, or we say no, or we, we, we propose one for one trade-offs here, right? Okay. Okay. Mr. Ms. Exec, right? We can do that. Here are the two things we're going to cancel, mm-hmm. right? And you have to name specific things, not some vague, oh yeah, we're going to look at the roadmap and pull some things out. That doesn't help, right? You have to say, um, if you really want us to build this special cool thing, because you just got off the phone with JP Morgan Chase and they said they'd spend a million with us if, right? Um, here's here's the thing we're going to throw out of the car window for Ford, because I'm sticking with my analogy there, right? Um, and and here's the thing we're not going to do for this other customer. Um, and, and you're going to have to take the call. You know, um, on the other hand, it's useful to know that um, uh, MTBE, mean time between executives, okay, mm-hmm. the half-life 
of a chief product officer is pretty short. I put it at about 20 months. Mm -hmm. And coincidentally, that's about how long it takes for the rest of the executive team to get really, really tired hearing that they can't have what they want. Right. So, um, go. Yeah. Uh, you know, just, just listening to you, it, it, it there's your, what you're doing obviously is you're bringing in, uh, the reality of constraints, uh, the fact yes. that there's not endless cycles of development and design and, and so forth that are available. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, you know, I feel that pain. I was talking with one of my people today, you know, we're a teensy weensy company and she says, you know, everything is code red. I don't know what my priorities are. And I, you know, I, I can feel that pain and uh, I wish I, um, you know, I wish I, I could help better. And maybe this is why it's good to talk with you. Uh, it yeah. helps me see that uh, the constraints are really, uh, I to, to oversimplify two things. Now, you've been mentioning the roadmap. The roadmap is time. And people and, and money. people. But well, also... Uh, I mean, what about things like a budget or a P&L? That's your, is that your money side or not, not no, so much? I, so, so it turns out that the money side usually belongs to sales and marketing, but, um, but you know, the, the, the response I usually expect from execs who aren't really steeped in the software side of the business are any sentence that includes the word just mm -hmm. as in, can't we just right? Mm -hmm. Or anything about how easy it is, and it's probably only 10 lines of code, and can't you just do it, right? Um, that and the other one that says, well, look, the customer is going to pay us $100,000 for this. We'll just take half of that and hire some offshore team, right? And and that's coming to mind because um, I was sad to hear this week that uh, Fred Brooks died, mm. which most people don't remember, but he wrote the 1973 book, I think, mythical man month and he taught us that when you add people to the project later it makes the project later mm -hmm. right and this idea that we're going to grab some money go hire a team in you tell me where buenos aires and they're already going to know everything about our system the thing they're going to build is going to be perfect and it's never going to need maintenance right it, it's it's simply wrong but but the the natural human response is i need what i need so let me give you reasons why I can have it, right? Um, I, you mentioned parental here, I think a little while ago, but for me, product management's a lot like raising a kid because, you know, uh, version 1.0 isn't very good mm -hmm. in the same way that your one-year-old can't play the violin for the most part, right? But you've got a plan to make your product big and strong and go to university after, uh, after release 18. And that means really, really watching out for and protecting your product from all of the really good suggestions that aren't good and all of the, the seemingly shortcuts which aren't short so that we can deliver stuff that customers love and keep in business, right? So, so a lot of this is, you know, how do we, and, and the bigger we, right? Design, engineering, DevOps, tech writers, test engineers, everybody who's in the maker side of the house, we have to love our products the way we love our kids. Because ultimately we're doing this because the product wants to be great and the product wants to survive and people want to use the product to succeed, not really just because it's going to make the company money. Right. If we were trying to make the company money, we'd have put up a, you know, a, a, cyber, a, a, a crypto coin exchange last year and then last run year. off with the proceeds. Yeah. Well, well and, and, and run off to the Bahamas before it crashed. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds like a plan. 
We've been seeing that happen. <laughs> I missed it, sorry. Yeah. Next time. Me too. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be a next time before we before too long. Uh, I want to just jump back to the roadmap, though. Um, yeah. You know, that's sort of the the Bible here. That's the, you know, the, the center of all truth. And, uh, you know, the, we need them for the, the reasons you've covered to help us understand what our constraints are and so forth. But we're dealing today with so much uncertainty. And I, I, I've been fond yes. of saying, well, in such cases, you've you got to make your own certainty. And I'm starting to wonder if that's just a bunch of crap. Uh, I, uh, I, I, would, I would frame it slightly differently. I would say the roadmap is the most recent set of agreements we've made about what's important. But right, it's it it yeah, and and um and we and we need to agree on what's important, but we get to change our mind as often as we want, as long as we understand the costs. But I guess my question is, does are you finding roadmaps are subject to such a more f like frequent battering of uh, can we's and can we justs than ever before because of the conditions in the marketplace being so kind of topsy turvy and uncertain. I guess I wouldn't say it's any better or worse than it was the last decade or two or three or mm. four. We're just a little more aware of it. Um, things are moving faster. On the other hand, uh, a bit of vocabulary, though, that might be useful here. So uh, we talk about roadmaps and strategy and vision, and, and we don't anchor them, right? And so I would be, I would be using phrases like the three-month roadmap mm. because – Certainly in the enterprise space, we should probably be 90% sure what we're going to build in the next three months because there's a lot of moving parts. And if we have to change something, we do, right? But, you know, I pegged the three months at 90% and I pegged the six months at 70%, right? Um, I think you need a 12-month strategy so that you can anchor your your work in something. Mm -hmm. And I think you need a, a five-year vision. And I only say that because here in Portland, Oregon, where I live, there's a, there's a dispensary on almost every block and vision is something we all need, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but vision's not actionable. And so when somebody comes at me and says, oh, we need to be in this other business, right? We need to be in the oil refining business. Mm -hmm. Well, that's like a five-year or a 10-year or a 20-year trip, right? And I can say, go off and do whatever thinking you want to do, but here's what we're doing for the next three months, right? So So attaching time definitions to these means that a three-month roadmap is different from a 12-month strategy, is different from whatever's bigger, right? Um, and, and if you're not making hard choices in the three to six to 12-month window, at least in the enterprise space, you're not going to ship anything. And, and I got to tell you, shipping nothing doesn't make the board of directors very happy. No, no. <laughs> you know, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we get back, I'd like to Speaking of vocabulary, get back to uh, my favorite term, UX, and mm -hmm. think about uh, those folks and how they all fit in here and what some of their struggles have been with product. So we'll be right back after this break. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research 
to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth, we'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. Let's talk about the UX people and, and how they are struggling uh, and maybe even succeeding, hopefully, with uh, working with product folks. Sure. Yeah. Um, a, a couple of thoughts that that come out of the the talk that I'll be doing at at our conference next week, which I'm really excited about. One of them, I think, is that over the last decade or so, maybe decade and a half, product management's finally getting its own representation at the executive team, whatever you call it, C-suite, right? Seat at the table. Team. Seat at the table, right? And, you know, uh, right back to Hamilton, you need to be in the room where it happens. And product folks, at, at, particularly in B2C, a little slower in B2B enterprise, uh, we're actually getting representation in the big meeting with the big kids around the big kid table. And UX isn't there yet, right? And, and I hope it gets there. But in the meantime, what's really important is if you're not going to be in the room where it happens, you need champions. You need people who stand up and merchandise the good things you did and talk about your successes and show and tell that you're making an impact, that you're being successful. And so when I look at the, the very clear partnership between product and UX, and by the way, engineering too, um, I think it's really incumbent on us on the product side to share the mic, to speak up for, to applaud, to show and tell all the really good things that our UX team is doing and, and say their names out loud, right? That if, if there's nobody in that executive meeting who's saying your name out loud and your department's name out loud, you find out that you don't get budget in the staff next time, right? So, so because we as product folks are now finally getting access to the big kids table, I think we've got to be the people who, you know, cheer on and celebrate the great work that UX does because UX isn't in the room. And how, well, but how should the UX people be um, helping you be their champions? Well, are there, are there it, things that UX people are dropping the ball on there? Yeah, I think so on both sides. And, and if you think about that forum, that moment, it's really about some short sound bites and showing some piece of work that can be demoed in under 20 seconds, right? It's, it's brief, right? And the UXers who are doing really good work need to sit with the product folks and make sure that product's a good um, megaphone for them, right? That means either showing or creating assets. It means making sure the product knows when we've done something good. And, you know, I'm always encouraging my folks to, to come back and say, well, 
let me see if I heard that right. Let me repeat it back to you what I think you said, right? No jargon, right? Nobody in the executive suite cares about what process we followed mm -hmm. or process if we're Canadians. Um, nobody cares whether we did surveys or one-on-one -on -one interviews or mall intercepts or whatever the thing is. What they want to know is, did it move the needle? Did we have an output? Did we have an outcome? Uh, what did we learn? What, how's it going to change our direction, right? So, and product folks are pretty good at boiling long sets of discussions down to a couple of sentences, but we need to know what it is. We need to be, you know, walked through it. And particularly execs really like show rather than tell. So if there's some before and after picture or a 20 second video clip or something, right? So that we can, we can have our representative walk in the room and say, hey, um, let me show you something really cool and impressive and surprising that we learned from our UX partners or that they did that, that makes something happen in the company you care about. Right. So that's a, you know, that's both recognizing it, translating it, make sure we have the asset so that we're not spending 42 minutes with some folks who don't care explaining some UX, you know, stepwise theory that we don't understand either. But does it ever go even further? Like, do you see product people, product managers, let's say, uh, having the, their UX peers, uh, actually design the entire presentation in a way so that uh, oh sure i i think that's a question of uh, who's good at it who's got the time right i mean um i don't care who builds those assets i just know we need them uh, in the same way if we think about interviewing enterprise customers or users right now sometimes the ux team organizes those calls um, i always want a product manager on the call by the way, I always want an engineer on the call too, mm -hmm. even though we don't want them to speak. We want them to listen because um, product and UX and, and engineering really, we, we have different brains. We hear different things, right? Sometimes the product folks organize the calls and then we, we want to make sure that we've got a designer, we have a UXer on the call in the room in real time, not just getting it later because we'll get, we'll learn more, we'll share more, we'll have all the same real-time context, right? So, so there, I know it has to get done. I don't care who does it, right? Um, uh, some organizations is one, the other it's who's easier, whatever, you know. But, um, but it has to get done, mm -hmm. right? Um, I can't. I'm not allowed, I don't think, to whine about a real shortage of highly talented UX folks and designers if I haven't gone to bat for them 22 times to get the recs and the money and the tools that we need to have them successful, mm -hmm. right? Um, not okay to complain about it and then not lean in, right? On the other hand, most product managers are not UXers. They're not designers. I'm certainly not. And the idea that we're going to double you know double assign somebody to be both product and ux for me it's a failed strategy it's a failed hiring approach so 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 if I, back to the, this product i want to grow up to be big and strong someday if i want it to be great i have to figure out how i'm going to get great designers great uxers on my team even if I have to steal it from some other team, um, because otherwise we're going to have less great product and I'm going to be unhappy. Well, you know, it sounds like some sort of co-parenting relationship. Uh, yeah. It, you know, one, one hopes it's functional, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I think you can, 
I think what you're saying, you know, obviously it makes great sense, but I do think there's a big disconnect when it comes to language, like that people are speaking kind of a different language. And how do you find the UX people and product people getting on the same page so that they can actually communicate better? Is it just a matter of spending time together? Is there any thing you've seen that's really kind of helped uh, speed that along? Yeah, I try my best and I try to coach my product managers to try their best to avoid all the key words and the special meanings. So like I'll go off on an MPV, uh, MVP rant for a minute here, right? So uh, nobody on my staff ever uses the acronym MVP more than once. The first time I take them around for a lecture around the parking lot for an hour, second time they're fired mm -hmm. because every single person in the room has a different idea of what they think that means and none of them go back to the source documents so if i say mvp the next thing i have to do is explain what i meant and it's different from what everybody else meant so i would say non-revenue non-working prototype and everybody knows what i mean right and so so i think a lot of the language gets in the way and, you know, when we're talking about design systems, and honestly, I have no idea what one of those is, or I couldn't recognize one if it drove me, drove over me on Broadway, right? Um, you know, plain language, um, asking the question until you think you understand, playing it back. Um, and then the other thing really important, and maybe the most important thing for every team is, we should do some bonding that's not about the work. Now, it's mm. much harder for remote teams, but you know what, let's just all, the whole team goes out for dinner right? That's the moment when we all learn to trust each other. We laugh. We talk about our kids or our pets or our sports or whatever we talk about, right? It turns out we're all very similar to each other. It's not that different. You know, we've been through a lot of the same things and we build trust and personal relationships. And, and gosh, I think taking the team out for dinner and drinks, that's worth 20 hours of defining terms and looking at racy charts and you know, wasting process moments. Well, and Rich, the, the, that advice is also worth quite a bit. That's really golden. And that's something that's accessible to anyone who's listening to this podcast. I hope uh, so. No, got to wrap it up, but I do want to uh, ask you one more question in mm -hmm. uh, Roosevelt Review tradition. Uh, what's the, the gift you brought for our listeners today? Ah, yeah. I went I went way back in the way back machine for anybody who's old enough to know what that was. Um, uh, there's a guy I worked with years ago named Randy Farmer. Randy. He has, love uh, that guy. Randy. Yeah. And he has a 2010 book. So you can count on your fingers how old it is uh, called Web Reputation Systems. Yep. And a lot of it is about how the bad actors on uh, B2C and social networks and such uh, subvert and break the systems and, and drive us nuts. And it's really smart, prescient in its own way. I mean, looking at all the headlines about blue checks and no blue checks out of Twitter this week and how, you know, a bunch of really smart people wrote a, an 11 page memo explaining how this was all going to be terrible and burned to the ground if they did what they did, which they did anyway. Yep. Right. Uh, you know, what's old is new. And, and so, so I go back to Randy's book every once in a while because he's really thoughtful about how and why people misbehave and and what we can do to reduce the the surface area of our products so that there's less chances to misbehave love it that's great um I'm, I'm so glad to hear about randy's work it's been a while since i've thought about it but you're right i mean maybe the guy was many years ahead of his time and boy should be reading yeah. that book right now 
Well, thanks for that. Indeed. And thank you uh, just for offering some great advice. I could listen to you all day. And I know a lot of other people would enjoy that. And they can talk with you live during the Q&A after your talk on December 6th. That's coming up really soon at Design in Product, a virtual conference uh, for UX people who want to do uh, better work working, partnering with product people. And uh, Rich is going to be there. So, Rich, thank you so much. Thanks for the great work you do. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Hey, it's Lou. Thank you for listening to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast. I really appreciate it. I would love to hear from you. And if you want to pop me an email, lou at rosenfeldmedia.com. Tell me what you thought. Better yet, leave me the hell alone and post a review on your favorite podcast platform. Please feed the algorithm. It really does make a difference. We want to get the word out. If you like the word, give us a hand. And uh, while I'm asking you for favors, don't forget, buy books. Support your favorite local independent publisher. We happen to be one, rosenfeldmedia.com. All those great UX books are there. So thanks again. <laughs>